We are today in, we're going to start in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're looking at this season of mission, God at work as the early church expands. And we've been looking at the city of Corinth, this letter to the church in Corinth. It's a center of commerce. Uh, it's home of the pagan temple of Aphrodite. It's, it's probably fairly equivalent culturally to what we would consider Las Vegas uh, in our own North American culture. There was an early church there planted by Paul, and it, uh, he underwent some Jewish opposition during this time. And, and the context, as we build up to the text we're working on in, in this letter, remember the first week we talked about Paul's describing what he sees in the Corinthian church, and it's, it's literally a far cry from what he talks about the rest of the letter. It's, he's seeing by faith who the people are in Christ. And last week, that gave him a safe space by saying, this is who you actually are in Christ, so now let's live into that. He started dealing with the issue of divisions within the church and how the wisdom of the cross um, could apply to that. And that in Jesus, remember we said last week, all things are yours, that you're free not to fight, not to elevate yourself, just, just to receive what God has. And this week, I, as I planned out the series, I, I thought, okay, we're going to take chapter four or five, six, and seven. Uh, I've just decided to do five and six, which is way more than I probably should do. Uh, so seven, you'll just have to read and interpret on your own. That's great. But what we're going to do in this, I, I just want you to fasten your seatbelt. This is probably, um, this is a very labor intensive sermon. There's a lot of text here. I'm, I'm not going to answer every question you have. I'm going to leave things there for you to wrestle with. Um, but we are going to have a clear focus and try and look at what Paul is doing. And so let's start with uh, 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read it in three chunks. I'll read 5, then I'll read part of 6, and then the last part of 6. But this first chunk, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. Paul writes to them, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business of, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Nothing like hitting the ground at 100 miles an hour. 
And this passage inspires a lot of questions, lots of shock, lots of other things. And I can, like I say, I'm not going to deal with every question you have here. Uh, This text can be unsettling, especially due to the subject matter. He's talking about sexuality and he's dealing with what I'll call a Corinthian situation. Uh, There's something going on there. And um, I I actually thought about titling this whole sermon series, Corinth, Location, Fornication, Location. But uh, Jake talked me out of it, and there was good wisdom there. But this, this passage is dealing with difficult things, not an easy text. It, it deals with a, contra, uh, a controversial or a confrontational issue, and the way Paul seeks to resolve it doesn't really jive with the way we feel things might need to happen in the 21st century. But rather than react to the text, and that's what we tend to do, we tend to jump to conclusions, we tend to try to figure it all out, let's just take some time to walk through it and, and look at what's actually there. Paul is confronting a shocking reality. Some things to note about that first verse. There is immorality happening, and it says it's even a type that's frowned on by the pagans, by non-believers. It appears that a man is in a relationship with his stepmom. Now, it's not with his mother because the wording says it's, it's, it's his father's wife. Um, and, and has, is, he's, a man has his father's wife. It's this continual verb form that says there is this ongoing relationship. And it's shocking even to those outside the church. This was actually against the law of Rome to have this type of relationship. Not only was Paul saying this is wrong, Roman law said this is wrong, which indicates that this guy was probably pretty well connected to be able to do this and not suffer the consequences. He was the assumption, a lot of scholars say he's a very high up magistrate or or some type of leader because he can do this without being called to the courts in the Roman system. And that, I think, I think, is what the bragging is about. I mean, it sounds a little weird that they would brag about this relationship. And I, I, I mean, Corinth is a bad place, but it's not that far gone. I think what they're bragging about is they've got this guy. And if you compare that to last week when they were trying to, to pair themselves with these teachers and, and elevate themselves, they're, they're happy that they've got this high-ranking official in their church. So they're just kind of letting this slide. And he appears to be from this a part of the, of the church, but the woman does not because Paul never addresses her at all. He's talking about what they should do with the man. And he says they should be taking action to address it. He's amazed they're proud of it. The fact that the guys in their church is what I think it is, which may be why they haven't also confronted it. But he says they should have been filled with grief and, quote, put out of your fellowship the man who did this. He says you have to deal with this situation. And this is, I mean, this is where we don't know all the answers. Paul says, here's what you need to do. He says, I'm not there, but rest assured I'm there in spirit. I think this needs to be stopped or dealt with. So when you are together and I'm with you in spirit, he says, hand this man over to Satan so that this sinful nature that he's living by will be destroyed. And there's still hope that he can be saved because of your action. Now, this is where we have all these. What does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? What does this look like? And we don't really know. Is this a formal process? Is this a type of ceremony that they did? We're curious, right? And we, we spend time wondering. But, but 
but the reality is, even though we don't know the form that it took in the meeting or what, however it played out, we do see there is some type of church discipline happening here. There's a person claiming to be a believer, acting in a way that's not in line with the truth of Scripture, and the church is confronting that issue. They're acknowledging the sin. They're calling for repentance. And if the change doesn't happen, then that person is, as verse 2 says, to be put out of the fellowship. And it's in the hope, I'll talk about this later, it's in the hope that it would lead to repentance and reconciliation. Now this cuts against the grain in our society. Because our world says, well, who am I? To judge, because it's not just this. He's like, uh, you know, uh, slanderers and other these these other people. If if you're claiming to be a believer and doing these things, you you shouldn't continue that. And so our society says, well, who am I to to judge that? Or or isn't this just a public shaming? We know that's not healthy. It's not healthy just to lay shame on people. That's it's a it's a form of manipulation. I don't have answers to all that. <laughs> I know we feel that way about it, but what I see in the text is Paul is saying. You, you, you have to do this. You have to act in a way that calls this man on his sin. And I want you to see why it's so important to Paul. He moves on to say, in my words, it's an issue of our identity. There's a key phrase in verse 7. Let me start with verse 6 and work my way there. He says you're, in, in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast. And here's that phrase, as you really are. And why are we free of the, the yeast? See, this idea is Passover. And he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He says, continuing to tolerate this kind of behavior is not acceptable because of who we really are, thanks to what Jesus has done. It's the theme of the wisdom of the cross to seeing the Corinthians. He says, this is not who we are in Christ, this type of behavior. And he says, since we are made pure by Christ, then verse 8, let's keep the festival, the Passover festival, but not with the old yeast. That's what we used to be like, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. This, this whole reason this needs to be dealt with comes back to our identity who we are in Christ. And Paul goes on to say, I've written about this, which is a previous letter we don't have. And he says, this cannot be a part of who you are, but I'm not saying avoid the world. This is impossible. We've, see, we've messed this one up. We've, we've tried to use scripture and things like this just to make us look better than everybody else in the world. Well, this is not us and that's them. Paul says, or we're trying to avoid and separate. And we, I, I know, you know, you Mennonites didn't go to movies for a long time. You didn't do all these things to keep you separate from that bad, bad world. That's not what Paul's saying. In fact, I found a great quote by D.A. Carson. And he says, the ease with which the present day church often passes judgment on the ethical or structural misconduct of the outside community is at times matched only by its reluctance to take action to remedy the ethical conduct of its own members. We've reversed Paul's order of things. See, Carson's saying, we want to judge the world. We want to tell them how bad that is, but we don't look into our own life. And Paul says, when it comes to those who claim to be a believer, but continue to live in opposition to who we are in Christ, that is a problem. We have to address that. 
And we have to address it because of the identity of who we are. In verse 11, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. It's when you're claiming to be this, but living another way, he's saying that can't be, that can't go unacknowledged or unaddressed. And the issue isn't occasional sin. The issue is, you know, we all make mistakes. We all do things. He's not trying to, to say you have to be perfect to be here, but he's saying if you're claiming to be a Christian and this is ongoing, then, then the church has to deal with it. The issue is one of identity. Remember, we talked that first week of the series about living into what God has done and what God's doing. And Paul's saying that as a body, corporately, they need to be serious about living out who they really are. Now, I know you have more questions. We'll come back to this a little bit at the end. But I want to move on to chapter 6. 6, 1 to 11. It, 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 it gets a little easier for a minute, but then it digs right back in again. So chapter 6, we'll read 1 to 11. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It's a different subject, but it's somewhat related. It's disputes, and he's talking about how the church differs from the world. If you haven't already noticed, Paul draws a pretty sharp line between the church and the world, believers and those who don't believe. He says we see things differently. We're shaped by the vision of the Spirit of God who lives within us and calls us to that wisdom of the cross, that different way of thinking and living. And in this issue of disputes, Paul questions the normal process. A process. I can never remember what Canadians say. I'm so lost between my American upbringing and my Canadian life now. Process or process? Process, process is what Canadians say. Okay. Paul questions the normal process. There we go. Remember that Corinth was all about status and power. And often these disputes were ways in that culture of establishing where you were in the pecking order. In fact, sometimes people would take other people to court over trivial matters just to win and be one-upped. It, it, it happened all the time. It was like a social pecking order. One, one scholar writes, Among the elite of the first century society, it was quite acceptable to institute civil proceedings before a magistrate and a jury on trivial matters in order to establish one's social and political superiority over others. In weighing up their decision in such cases, the jury would have to take into account the status and the power of the opposing parties, and the judge had to act in the same way in imposing fines. So this whole process of, of going before the magistrate was a way of establishing the pecking order of society. And because of that, 
that was really susceptible to bribes. People would pay to, to, to go up the ladder. It's a corrupt system. And Paul says, why in the world would you go to this system to settle your disputes? It's a corrupt system. It, it lives by the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of the cross. Verse 4 and 5. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? He wants them to think again about the goal of settling the dispute. Is it gaining power or is it the wisdom of the cross? He says, just the fact that you're buying into this system says you're already defeated. Why not surrender to love? Why not serve the other? That's what he talked about back in chapter 1, this wisdom of the cross. For the wisdom of God through the world, the world through its wisdom did not know him. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, Paul says the way of the world does not fit with the way we operate. So why would you ever try to establish your superiority? Why would you ever, why not just be wronged? Why not be cheated? Let it go. Why would you go do that? Entering and engaging by this corrupt process of their Corinthian society doesn't make sense. Once again, he says, it's an issue of our identity. He alludes to this all the way through. In verse 2, he says, the saints, don't you know the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, we will judge angels. Verse 4, he says, can't you find anybody, even like the bottom of the rung in the church, should be able to settle this dispute, to make a proper evaluation. But he really hones in on the issue of identity in verses 9 to 11. And, and this is a passage that's been used very often to divide and to separate, as well as to elevate some over others. Look at 9 and 10 again. I'll read it. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, we read this and, and, and believe me, if you look at Christian culture, this is the passage that's used to define who's in and who's out. There's been a lot of theological and linguistic teasing of these categories. They've looked at the Greek words to figure out what exactly do all these things mean in order to arm ourselves with truth and protect the, the purity of the church. But that's not what Paul's driving at, I don't think, here. He's reminding them of their identity because in verse 11 he says, And that is what some of you were. He's not trying to elevate and say, you guys are so... He says, this is exactly the kind of people that you were. And think about us. How many of you have ever... Just let's be honest. You don't have to raise your hand. And I can't see you even if you do. Right? How many of us have ever taken something from somebody else? Thieves. You know, we, we look at the first ones that are heavy and hard and dark and say, oh, I've never done that. But how many of us have taken something that wasn't ours? Greedy. How many of you... Have things in your possession that if you let go of them, they would help other people. Other people need them, and yet you're holding on to them. Slanderers. Have you ever gossiped 
about another individual. Right? Swindlers, have you ever manipulated a situation for your own benefit? The point is not clarifying who's out. The point is to say we were all out. But the cross says not anymore. That is who you were. Verse 11b, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's not saying those people can never get into the kingdom of heaven. It's saying that the cross brings all those people into the kingdom of heaven. Well, it, it makes a way for them to be clean and forgiven. Because of Jesus, your past is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. You're this new creation. And so therefore, you should live into what God is doing. And the two things he's mentioned here, avoid immorality and stop using worldly systems to put other people down and lift yourself up. It's not who you are in Christ. And then he comes back at the ending of chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. It's kind of a summary. He, he's talking about sexuality again, but he's honing in on the implications of belonging to God. He circles back, talking about sexuality, but, but there's this summary. And, and, and he talks about what's permissible and what's beneficial. Let me pick it up at verse 12. He's quoting them. I have a right to do anything, or in some translations, all things are permissible for me, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He starts by quoting something he's heard from the Corinthians. Everything is permissible for me, or in this, my version, I have the right to do anything. He's heard them say that, right? Because of the free grace of God, because I've been forgiven, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm forgiven. I'm new, and that frees me. And this is addressing what's often referred to in our society as you have the right to do this, right? I have rights. I can do this. I have rights as a Canadian citizen. I have rights as an American citizen, right? I'm, I'm both. And sure, forgiveness does, means it doesn't depend on my ability to do the right thing. It's, forgiveness says it's all about the grace of God. But Paul says, even if it's permissible, even if you've been forgiven, right? It's not beneficial. It's not good for you. In fact, he says, what is permissible for you, what you can do, what you have the right to do, might actually become your master. And that's where he starts talking about the idol and the illusion of freedom. It's a pretty relevant issue in our world today, this idea of personal freedom and my rights. And it goes deep to the core of human nature. We all want our rights. I had a professor in university who 
like the comedian George Carlin, and I would say to this professor, have a nice day, and he would look at me and say, hey, don't tell me what to do. That's what George Carlin used to say, right? Don't tell me, you don't tell me what to do. And that's the way we feel. That's, that's part of being human, this sense of, I have rights. I have this sense of freedom. And, and sometimes we take, we spiritualize that, and we say, the grace of God frees me completely. Or little kids, you can't make me do that. <laughs> I love that when I used to hear that. Because it was a challenge and I was going to win before it was over. But anyway, we'll go on to that. We'll go. But this, because they can't make me either. But anyway, the idea of personal freedom or rights can become an idol for us. And yes, the grace of God covers all our sin. Yes, we are free. We're not bound by the, by the law, right? But Paul's saying, don't you understand that that freedom can actually become an idol? Or it can become an illusion of freedom because what you're giving yourself into can actually start to master you. Sometimes the things we do master us. We think we are free, but it's actually an illusion. People claim their rights. But, but what I see in Scripture is, is we lay down our rights. That's the wisdom of the cross. It's counterintuitive. See, the cross says you don't even really know what you need. And only by serving and loving and surrendering, will God lead you into what you actually need? And the reason this is so important to understand, guess what? <laughs> Paul says it's an issue of our identity. We see that clearly at the end. He says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. But he, makes, he, he uses our bodies as an example to literally flesh out this idea of identity. In verse 14, he says, God raised the body of Jesus. He's going to raise our bodies too. So there's something that lasts about our bodies. We're going to get these new, holy, complete bodies. We're not going to live eternity as these disembodied spirits. He says our, our actual bodies, in verse 15, he says, are members of Christ himself. Somehow this physical body that I have is linked to Christ. So what you do with your body matters. And he, he says, you know, if sexual union and, and the deep connection that comes from that unites people together, he says, we are linked to God as well. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that means. I'm trying to live out, that out and figure it. That's a huge concept, to be linked with God in spirit. It's what Jesus was praying for in John 17. I'm sure Tim's going to flesh all that out in his Trinity series. Right? He's going to explain that to you, so sign up for that Trinity series. But what he's saying, based on the core of who we are, sexual immorality or using systems to elevate ourselves over others, they just don't make sense based on who we are in Christ. We don't, we don't need to live that way. You're not your own, he says. You're bought with a price. And I, I know these issues have opened up a can of worms for us. Like, how do, we, how do we practically deal with immorality within the church in a way that, that works, in a way that's driven by Scripture? That's a big issue. It's a hard one to figure out. Or... Do we just let other Christians take advantage of us? Do we not stand up for our rights? Do we just let people take advantage of us? But all of these issues come down to, to this issue of identity. Who are we in Christ? All things are yours. All things are permissible, but are they beneficial? Are we being mastered by these things that take us down a pathway that, that doesn't bring joy and fulfillment in the kingdom of God? We're called to be united to Christ in spirit and to live out what God is doing. 
And I, I want to apply a few of the million things this passage says at the end by looking at the big picture. And I want to look at how following Jesus changes our normal. There's a lot of application within the text. There's a lot of things, a lot of rabbit trails you could go down. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, I didn't need to. I, I'm curious about that. Well, <laughs> I, I, I want to look at the big picture. You know, sometimes we think following Jesus is kind of like getting a new car with dual climate control. It makes where we're going already just a little bit nicer, right? My wife can have the heat and I can have the air and it all works great. But we're still going in the same direction. But that's not the way following Jesus goes. He tends to take us a whole different direction. Following Jesus challenges our normal. He cuts down the old us. He calls us to crucify the old us. And to live into a new identity. Jesus challenged people. It said in John 7, some, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some people wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards declared. See, the way he talked challenged it, unsettled people. They didn't quite know what to do. And the same thing should happen with us today. The word of God should unsettle us. But our, our tendency is to shift the focus. And this is, this is how I avoid dealing with all these questions that you have, right? The challenge of this text is we want to know the answers to what it says about them, about others. I go back to that all the time when, when Jesus is kind of talking to Peter at the end, you know, reinstating him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter feels under the fire. And then in John 21, 21, it says, when Peter saw him, John, he asked, Lord, what about him? And see, that, we come to a text like this and we want to know what about them? We want to know how church discipline is supposed to play out for those people that we don't know how to deal with. Or, or how do we keep bad people away? Or when people take advantage of us, Christian people, what do we do? We want to know what, what happens to them. We come to this text trying to figure out the information. And, and I'm afraid often when we come to the Bible, we're seeking knowledge instead of transformation. That's our question. Are we seeking knowledge or are we seeking transformation? I know there's lots of questions that come out of a text like this. How do we live it out? How do we model grace? How do we not shame people into compliance? It's a good question. But you know what? I can sit with that question so long that I forget to say, what is the text saying to me about my own life? I can focus on the procedural or the things I don't understand. How can Paul say that? What does it mean to hand him over to Satan? Well, you know what? I don't know. But, but if I'm seeking knowledge instead of transformation, I'll fixate on that. If I'm seeking transformation, I'll, I'll, I'll move past that and say, what's it saying? What's it challenging in my own life? I, I, years ago, when I first came to this church, I remember one morning reading in my quiet time, this John 5, 39 and 40. And I was cut to the heart because it says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And God, it's like God said to me, Jeff, stop giving people knowledge and read the book for you and then share that process. We, we try to get knowledge and what God wants to do is change who we actually are. Eugene Peterson says, he says, do you read the Bible for information or do you read the Bible for formation? 
Do you want to know something or do you want to be a different person? You see, if, if we're only going for knowledge or information, it's one of the ways we actually feel very spiritual because we're studying the scripture. <laughs> we feel like we're doing something very spiritual, but we're still bringing the same us all along the journey. We're not being transformed. We can easily avoid what the passage says to us specifically if we can just try to figure out what it says for everybody else. So what is this passage saying to us? There's, there's two things with kind of some subpoints I want to talk about. The first one, and this is, you're going to hear a lot of this from me because this is a lot of what I'm doing my, my studies on, is the pa- passage challenge our attempts to separate the inseparable. I need to explain this a bit. We all know that passage used at weddings, Mark 10, 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And, and I think that's, it's definitely relating to marriage there, but I think that's true about other things as well. I think it reminds us that you cannot separate your body, your mind, and your spirit. In chapter 6, 15 to 20, Paul makes it clear that our physical body matters. It's not just one thing that we're going to be done with. The habits, the things that we do with our body actually are very important. We can't separate them from our spirit or our mind. They're all linked. And we often separate. We make Christianity a a, a fact we know these things. Or, Or sometimes we make Christianity that we feel these things. But, but it, it, it's, it's knowing, it's feeling, and it's doing these things. All three of those things. I've, I've talked before about my learning curve when I was coaching basketball. And I'll, I'll just briefly go back. I, when I started, I thought, I just got to teach the girls what to do. I just got to teach them the rules, teach them the skills, teach them how to do things. And if they just know it, then they'll go out there and they'll do it. And they didn't. And we lost and we lost and we lost. And then I, I thought, okay, if we're going to keep losing... I, I want to try to do something a little more important. So I tried to get them to love each other. I thought if I can build some unity there, at least they'll learn to work as a team and to serve one another. So I, I had moved from mind to actually this whole idea of heart. I wanted them to love it. And, and they started getting a little bit better, but we still lost. We lost. And I realized that what they had to do was actually physically change their habits. When they caught the ball, they had to catch it a certain way. And until they had done that a thousand times, didn't matter how much they knew they were supposed to catch it, didn't matter how much they loved their team, until they physically trained their body to do something differently, they were still going to be doing the same thing. And, and the same is true. Christianity is not just about knowing. It's not just about loving. It's actually about our bodily practices, right? Rituals like kneeling, there's a reason. There's a reason that, that Jesus would, would have people go places. There's a reason that in the Old Testament, they went up to the temple. They, they would, all these things we do with our body, the smells, the sights, all these things help to shape us. This one's like fasting. What, what is that? Well, it engages all of you. I know some of you, as you went through the, the, season, or the stations of the cross, there were several breathing stations and people get, oh, But the reality is our body is a part of us as well. And it's got to be surrendered. If you're going to follow Jesus and live into what God is doing, it's going to involve your heart, your mind, and your body. You cannot separate those. We'll talk about that more and more over the next however long I'm here. (laughs) You also can't separate the individual from the community. We talked about this last week too. 
We are united into one. Don't you know, 2 Corinthians 3.16, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. That, that, that in a plurality, all of us together are the temple of God. And this cuts at the heart of our North American way of thinking because we are so individualistic. We think of me. And we don't even realize we think that way. Tim Keller, a uh, pastor in New York City, talks about two forms of individualism. He, he calls one expressive individualism. And, and this is the idea that, that I decide within myself what's right or wrong. And, and for me, the goal is to be authentic, to authentically express who I am as an individual. I want to express myself, right? The self becomes the place where we look for what's right and wrong. Well, I feel this way and I want to be authentic to what I feel. And so this is the way I act. Now, I, 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 it, in the past, people have looked to a standard outside themselves. But in this individualistic culture, he says we have this form, expressive individualism, where we feel like we have to express who we are. And that's how we define what's good and what's not good. And you know, maybe in the church, we don't, we don't, I think subtly we do fall into that. But maybe we say, no, 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 we don't get that. But the church is guilty of what he calls moral individualism. And that is where I am only responsible for my own moral choices. I'm not responsible for what other people do. That's not my problem. I shouldn't get involved. I don't need to confront. In fact, <laughs> who am I to confront? Right? But you know what? If we really think about that, this is not a way to live. I get that people have misused the collective, that, that churches have manipulated and been cult-like, that leaders have done things that have been damaging. But, but it doesn't mean that the idea that we are one is a bad idea. It means it's been poorly done. See, corporate responsibility, that, that's the thing, yeah. You say people are responsible for their actions, but tell the, uh, the adult child that was abused, the adult that was abused as a child, that it's their own fault, Right? We, we do have, it's not like the, the things that, that happen are just the individual's moral issue. They are implications of the way we live, and it affects us as a community. This communal nature of our experience as Christians leads us to this other thing that I think the text is saying, this other application point. One, the necessity of the fellowship. In 5.2, he talks about putting this man out of the fellowship, literally out from among you, from the group. He says, there's something that's vitally important about us as opposed to just me. We're more than just a group of individuals that believe the same thing, gathering around our screens on a Sunday morning. We are the body of Christ. We're knit together. We've been bought. We are not our own. And because of this truth, we need that connection. We need to see the value of that, that it's bigger than all of us. And, and, and there's two things I think that, that we need to do as a community, as a fellowship. First, the fellowship needs to remind us of our identity. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 7, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In chapter 6, verse 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Chapter 6, 17. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. See, the fellowship is reminding them of their identity. This is who you are, people. This is, because, this is what the cross has done to us. He's been doing this all along. He started, remember, he started the whole letter by saying to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. 
He's reminding them of who they are. That's what the fellowship does. And it's one of the reasons that weekly gathering is so important. Even as during COVID around a screen, we come together, we walk through worship, we do the same thing over and over to remember who we really are. People always say, do I need to go to church? Well, all things are permissible for you. You don't have to come. But I will tell you that not connecting with the body on a regular rhythm is not beneficial. And it will lead to you being mastered by other things. You need it. You need it when you like it. And when you don't like it, guess what? You need it even more when you don't like it. You are one with us. And even if you stay away, you're still one with us. And if you stay away, it hurts all of us. And it's my job and Jake's job as teachers here to remind you of your identity. This is who you are. This is the truth about you. It's your job to remind each other of the truth about you. And as we do that, as we serve each other, we do it by helping us to live that out. The fellowship helps us to live that out. It's the being together that makes it happen. And like I said, sometimes it's great. Sometimes we love to be together. But how many of you have people in the church that just drive you crazy? We need that too. Sometimes it's the being together that gives us courage and peace and support. And sometimes it's the being together that forces us to love unconditionally and to forgive people that have hurt us. And, and you, know, you may say, Jeff, Paul's kicking this guy out. He doesn't like, he, he's, he's like, done. This is the end for this guy. Well, if you, if you come back in a few weeks when we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you'll see an update on this. He's talking about this guy, I think, here in 2 Corinthians 2. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, <clears throat> I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware of his schemes. You see, he's saying here later on, the same guy, we're going to welcome, we've got to remind him of his identity. Yes, it was hard for him to, to go through this situation. Yes, it was a painful time for the church, but we need to welcome him. Even this hard act of discipline is to try to bring him back. Paul writes of another um, in 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You see, there's, this is the heart of what's trying to happen here. The, 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 the fellowship is important to remind us of our identity and to help us to live into that. And we can get lost in the details. We, can, we get distracted by the information and we miss the point of transformation. That in Christ we are made new, that we are holy, blameless children of God, deeply loved by Him. And the role of the community is to remind us of that and to help us live into that. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's not. But that's what we're called to do as the body. That is the wisdom of the cross. I found, I'll close with this. I've talked way too long. I found a passage from Hebrew 10 that really sums it up for me. It starts like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. See that identity. We are not who we used to be. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Once again, 
God is with us in this. He's the one working in us and transforming us. And that leads us to respond in three ways. Paul says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Number two, let's hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promises faithful. There's another key of identity. And number three, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That spur one another on is literally in in Greek to irritate. Let us consider how we will irritate each other toward love and good deeds. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not, but it's what the fellowship does. That's our calling, to remember who we are and to live together in a way that reminds us of that truth and then live into it, what, who we are in Christ, together. Let's pray. God, it's a complicated text, and there's lots of loose ends there, and we know your Spirit teaches us. We're thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. But God, help us not to get so wrapped up in the details of the text that we miss this calling to be a part of a fellowship, to surrender our will and our rights to, to the Holy Spirit as you lead. And God, we're not talking about surrendering to pastors or to denominations. We're talking about surrendering to you as a body and realizing that we are connected in ways that we don't even imagine and understand. Help us to grow into that and to live out of that. Help us to to open our hearts to what the text would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I I hope, um, I think we don't realize how much our culture has shaped the way we think. We really on very, very deep levels, just see ourselves as individuals who operate in this world. (laughs) I mean, maybe we're connected to a family, but even then we're individuals within the family. And yet the scripture says that in Christ, somehow we have been knit together in a deeper way than we can even imagine. And that what we do or don't do impacts the rest of us. And, and I, I hope you can reflect on that and just begin to grasp a little bit that just because this is the way we think doesn't mean it's, it's the right way. It, it needs to be renewed. It needs to be transformed by the gospel. And, and the good hope is just how Paul started in his letter. I always thank my God for you because of the grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's my prayer for you, that you can rest in the fact that this process of learning, process, process of learning what it means to live as the body of Christ, to live in this spiritual union with God on a day-to-day basis and how it shapes all of us, that, that you'll realize he's going to be faithful. He will declare you blameless at the end. He has called you into fellowship with Jesus and he will not quit until he's finished. Amen.